You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Time to fire up the VCR. This one's my favorite. Welcome to Analog Jones in the Temple of Film. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt. And we're a VHS podcast that looks at the box art trailers and behind the scenes. And it's our first episode of 2021. Matt, how is the new year treating you? Happy, happy new year. Uh, it's, you know, a new year. It's a new day. Let's uh, let's restart. The last, the holidays have uh not been great to me i'm sleeping in my uh my bed's right next to me here sleeping in my uh dining room my bedroom is under construction because uh we had some problems it's been a time but i'm here i'm surviving uh (laughs) where i'm coming at you with a mostly still unfinished bedroom rooms away from me so but i'm surviving it's okay we're good we're making it well i'm sorry that's happening but at least you got food water and somewhere to sleep Exactly. It may be in my dining room, but at least I have a bed still. <laughs> no, I've had construction go on in uh, my place a long time ago. It's just so annoying, especially in a time like this. And when it's cold in Chicago, you just like want to be inside. You want to be warm. You don't want to deal with all the nonsense of the outside, but the outside world is now banging on your wall. Yes, exactly. And uh, it's the holidays time. So I, you know, it'd be really nice to just like be left alone. But alas... We are not. Our our next journey as we go into this new year, we'll be finding a new apartment. Uh, so wish us luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck to you. <laughs> so it sounds like you've had some time to watch some movies. And we've got one right here from Orion. Matt, what did we watch? We watched Something Wild. And that's not just a descriptor. That is the name of the film from 1986. Charlie's a mild-mannered executive who's never been far from home. Now Lulu's taking him all the way. I'm Lulu. Charles, pleased to meet you. I've never done anything like this before. Don't worry, Charlie, I have. (laughs) I mean, look straight, you know, but right down in here, that's where it counts. Deep down, I got what it takes. If you were my mother and I brought this guy home as my husband, what would you think? Very nice. But, um, I'd get rid of those handcuffs if I were you. But when Lulu brings Charlie home, oh gosh, things start to change. Hi, baby. Surprise. There's someone waiting to change something wild to something else. I missed you so damn much. It's over. Remember that. You should have never quit me, baby. You better ask yourself if you really want her. Who are Charlie's babies? Something daring. I'm going to take Lulu. We're going to waltz right out of here, and there's not a damn thing you can do. (laughs) Something dangerous. Something wild. It is wild. Wow. And it's also a very, very interesting film uh, from the mood changes to kind of the main antagonist not being introduced until halfway in the film. 
that is usually a bad sign. Not here. <laughs> Not here. This is a this is a strong script, and even though the structure is a little bit, uh, I don't want to say d- different, almost has like a negative connotation, but it is different. It does follow its own kind of pattern and path. I think we saw a lot of this in these kind of like, I don't want to say indie either, but like smaller kind of indie-ish comedies that were coming out of the 80s at this time that did just kind of hop around the genres a little bit. Yeah, this was kind of the rise of the independent filmmaker. This movie, not so much because it came from Orion, but Orion wasn't a giant massive name yet. It was definitely building. I believe this was the same year or the year before RoboCop when they just, I mean, they exploded. Yeah, this is 1986. So I guess, yeah, that is one year before RoboCop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, this is the height of that. And and besides even just uh, Orion themselves being sort of a a sticking point, I guess, for us, because we're looking at some Orion stuff. We also have Jonathan Demme here, too, directing it, who is somewhat of a established kind of. I don't want to say elite either, but like one of the top directors, I guess. That uh, people kind of, after Silence of the Lambs, he sort of became somewhat of a name. Yeah, and then he kind of fell off as a name, too. He's got a very interesting career. But the one thing we can all see in any of his movies, Silence of the Lambs, Philadelphia, Something Wild, if you've seen this, is he's great at character drama. He can really take conflict or two different characters or different moods in movies and blend them well And going back to the script, you're right. It's a very good script. Do you get a little Tarantino flavor out of this? Yeah, I do. Uh, There's something about like these these 80s ones, though, that's kind of its own flavor. uh, Thinking of like uh, Wild at Heart, the David Lynch movie, Mm -hmm. something, you know, like that. Like it's uh, it's that precursor kernel. It's the in between between like, I guess, Scorsese and Tarantino. We had all these weird mid 80s movies. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like After Hours, mm -hmm. which I I think it was called After Hours. It's been a while since I watched it. The Scorsese. Yeah, the Scorsese um, supposed to be Tim Burton, uh, (laughs) 1985 dark comedy. A lot of people I know haven't watched that. Uh, you, if you get bored, watch it. It's it's an interesting like one nighter film or in one day twenty four hour film. I always like those. Those are always fun. They always have something. You know, it's not immediate doom. You know what I mean? But you have a timeline and you feel like the character's running out of time, even though technically you could go over sometimes. Anyway, watch the film. Yeah, it's a great one. It's a great little sleeper. Made cheap on a funky script, which coming back is exactly what Something Wild is. It's a script that was passed around for a while, and, you know, no one really wanted it. One, it was from a guy who was still in college in Emacs Fry, who has not done much on my IMDb research. I did see that he did do an episode of Band of Brothers. It's the third one where the soldier's having trauma, and it's kind of interesting to look at, like, how much this would affect someone, you know, war. And... I I get why he wrote that. I, I can see him in the actual script. Um, I didn't rewatch the episode, but I really remember it because it's one that stuck out to me. Uh, Band of Brothers was really good, but a couple of the episodes stuck out. That one stuck out because of the trauma. I think what this writer does well is, like you mentioned, sort of like the character work, which we mentioned with Jonathan Demme. But I think this script, you know, for this movie, and you're, you're talking about that also, I think it, it takes time to just like 
focus on the characters, but not in a way where you're just like sitting in a room getting an exposition dump either. You, you know, you go, you learn, you just learn these people's stories. Yes, you're right. I never felt like I was just listening to exhibit uh, exhibitionist. <laughs> That's not the word. I never felt like he was just dumping it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I could rewatch it and look for that, but I don't really care. I just enjoyed listening to the characters speak their dialogue, how they said it, their emotions going through them and their confusion and just a lot of emotion in all of it. The mood changes, especially where, you know, just a simple phrase or whatever can change the way you feel in the script. Uh, talking about the line, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. I felt myself change when that guy said that. And I just find that fascinating how this director and this writer pulled that off. And of course, the actors. Yeah, because what you're you're getting with the setup is kind of almost just like the zany girl meets a stuck up guy and they go on an adventure thing, which is a you know, plot that the 2000s recycled a whole lot, <laughs> particularly thinking of a bunch of titles that did that. It doesn't stick that way. You know, it's not just some cutesy romantic comedy with a, a wild child and a square falling in love. It's a whole journey through her past and that drama. And then it becomes almost like a thriller for a while. It's just, yeah, it it, it doesn't do anything kind of typically, but it does kind of start with that kernel of uh you know of a genre that we've seen before where it starts as a road comedy like a rock and roll road comedy and then on a dime after one event it just turns into a thriller and you don't see many movies who can pull off that mood change of course most of them i can think of right now are quentin tarantino Mm -hmm. films where they just have such a sudden mood change where it works now this movie did okay i don't quite understand why it didn't create superstars at the time from these actors they had to wait a little bit longer but they all made it so at least that happened but they all they showed amazing performances just i mean ray Liotta. this is his film debut and he leaps off the screen he steals the movie and he's not even introduced until like an hour in yeah, I think this is the three leads. This is among their best work yes. for sure, for easily. And yeah, and Ray Liotta definitely walks off with the movie. Um, not not to say that he's picking up anybody's slack, but he just no. he just steals it. He's so good because <laughs> the first movie I always think of him in is Goodfellas. But really, that's the one that propelled him into you know general audience stardom. This movie right here got him you know nominated for a golden globe why not an oscar i don't know uh i I don't know the other movies that came out. i know that uh blue velvet came out the same year so that's probably a big problem for acting yeah and i guess that that movie kind of has cult status too doesn't it absolutely yeah Yeah. i think that's another one that fits in with this time period of genre benders and yeah that's more of a david lynch movie too like i mentioned wild at heart earlier blue velvet also has that vibe but it, it it does it's very indicative of the time as well. They're, those are the kind of movies that only could have been made in like the mid to late eighties. Oh wait, was this Platoon time too? Might have been. That was eighty six. Yeah, that's the same year. That owned the award season, didn't it? I think so. You know, I still haven't I haven't even seen that one. <laughs> I don't know if you'd like it. It's not your type of film. It's not really my type of film either, because 
most of the war films I like are a little bit more, uh, I don't know, <laughs> makes you feel better at the end. Platoon, though. <laughs> Platoon is rough. It just reminds you how rough war is and how awful and ugly it is. Yeah, Oliver Stone's not going to be nice to you while watching a movie like that. <laughs> no. But back into this, talking about the mood changes and everything, I, I just really feel like this is a Tar- I'm not saying Tarantino ever took anything from it. I'm saying Tarantino plays in the same realm as this writer. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And and like I said, I really think it is sort of a bridge. It's it's one of these movies that sort of got us from Scorsese to Tarantino to where we are today. You know, mm-hmm. this is one of those that's tonally kind of schizophrenic and a little bit genre bendy that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, got us to, you know, the indies that we got in the 90s with Tarantino and Richard Linklater and stuff like that and into into today with with you know their continuing legacies yeah and i don't think they knew how to market this film i think that's a big problem uh with why this movie only made eight million dollars i don't know if especially at this time in 86 i just don't know if they knew how to market it and i don't know if audiences were ready because this is so much different than your you know road comedies that we got or the dirty 80 comedies because it's not really all a comedy it's not really a thriller but they are it's not a love story but it is it's so much that i feel like general audiences even back then wanted to know what they were seeing they don't want to go on a mystery tour you know they're not looking to like oh i was so surprised by that most people don't want that especially once you have kids so and dates no it's just you and i you and i and a few other people out there who'd be like oh man you got to see this performance I don't see a lot of normies who are like, I can't wait to watch this performance. It's mostly I can't wait to watch this film, you know, the whole thing. And I think you know what I'm talking about. I just don't know if I'm saying it very well. No, I, I know what you're talking about. This one, it, it it is a hard sell and it would be hard to describe to somebody, hey, this is this kind of movie. I think you'd like it. However, like I would say, if if people given the chance to watch this movie, I do think I, I can't imagine people not liking this movie. You know what I mean? Like, I think every this is this has something for everybody, but it's going to be hard sell to get them to sit down to watch it. And I think that is the problem they had with the marketing of this movie, because I watched the trailer after I watched the movie and it is they're selling basically a romantic road mm-hmm. movie and they're not they're not giving you too much of the thriller aspects. However, the trailer does give like a lot of stuff away, and I think one of the more fun things about this movie is going in knowing as little as possible. So again, tough sell. How are you going to tell somebody, "Hey, watch this movie. I can't tell you anything about it, but I know you'll like it." <laughs> yeah, see the initial trailer is more the love story, but once the thriller started to pick up and the re-release came out in 96, it sells a little bit more the thriller. Mainly for two reasons. Thrillers were big. And two, every, you know, the movie had been out so long that you need to just accept that that's what it turns into. Well, Jonathan Demi had just won every award under the sun for a thriller. And now they could be like, well, we got another thriller that he did back in the 80s. It's not a fully a thriller, but. <laughs> He's an interesting guy, too, who goes from. He did not do well with some, <laughs> uh, some of his movies. And then other movies, you know, they're amazing. They're award winning. They're genre changers. You know, Philadelphia, Silence of the Lambs. But, you know, he also had his problems. So Swing Shift is one where he had huge problems with a big movie. 
You know, he had gone to, I don't know who made that, honestly. I, I think it might be Columbia. I don't know. Anyway, it was Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. And basically, after he was done with the film, they recut it and changed so much. And so, you know, he had that bad taste in his mouth. So he wanted something where he had, I'm not going to say full creative control, but where he could take a bite out of it. And he wanted something smaller. So he accepted this script 24 hours after he read it. And they were so adamant that they get someone to make this because it had been passed around for a while that they told Orion, you have one week to decide to make this because we're going to find someone. And Orion at this time was taking smaller scripts, spending less money than, you know, what they'd have in the early 90s and late 80s. Basically, they would take smaller scripts, spend less money, but get something I guess you could say pure out of it. It was performance based. You know, they were taking these smaller scripts that most big places didn't want because they didn't know how to market and then creating some really good independent flavor, you know, kind of it has that feel. But it even even though it's not really independent, but it is. They were taking these these fascinating scripts and allowing really talented people to produce them. Yeah, they kind of in in a way a little bit like did like the canon thing and obviously the movies aren't as silly or you know out there as some of like the canon action movies and stuff like that but like they were taking stuff that they could try to market you know like robocop if you think about it like stuff that they could try to market that maybe uh, yeah other studios were afraid of and i feel like with this with the something wild script this feels almost like one of those like blacklist scripts where it sits around for years and everybody's like this is the best script ever but you can't nobody's gonna make it (laughs) you know like this is what this script kind of feels like yeah it didn't quite have that but i know what you i know what you're saying i think this one just ended up being like yeah but how do we sell this yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm referring to sort of the flavor of it. That's kind of what it feels like. And I, yeah, I think that's that's what Orion was doing. They were picking up on stuff that good stuff, good stuff that you could put in front of an audience, but mm-hmm. tougher sells, uh, bigger studios aren't going to touch it. Yeah, and I guess we didn't even mention this. This is an entire month of Orion features because I just picked out a bunch of them and of ones I wanted to talk about. You chose one you wanted to talk about. So two of them are ones that I wanted to talk about, one you wanted to talk about, and the other one we both wanted to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but in the end, I wanted to talk about all of them, and that leads that could lead into sort of my history with this movie. Go for it. So when you brought this one up, I was pretty excited to talk about this. Uh, this was the second time I had seen this. I'd seen this once before. I remember that this was one growing up that my mom loved. She saw it in theaters. She always said, if you get a chance to see it, if you get a chance to see it. And in the early 90s, or not early 90s, but in mid to late 90s, this movie was actually kind of hard to find because it wasn't out on DVD yet and Orion had gone under. The VHSs were hard to find. My video store didn't have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is before on demand. So like, I didn't see this movie until later in into the 2000s. Oh, this is actually the third time I've seen it because then I fell in love with it and then I showed it at one of our movie nights we had here, closed out a movie night here, and, uh, you know, loved it again watching it then. And then when you brought it up, I was like, yeah, I got to talk about this one because Mm -hmm. I love this movie. (laughs) I'd never seen this, but I'd heard people, like, couldn't find this until the 95 re-release after we had Silence of the Lambs. So, and just looking at the VHS, I don't know how rare, but the HBO release is tough to find. I have never, I don't think, come across this one. 
I don't think I've ever come across this one. Uh, whether it be MGM, Orion, HBO, I have not seen this one in person. Oh, yeah, this one came out after Orion was shut down, and you've got something. The one I have, it's from Good Times. Mm. I don't know if you remember that little distributor, but it was short-lived. They kind of started kind of doing the thing that like Anchor Bay took over or uh, Elite Entertainment from the 2000s uh, where it was a re-release company. But I do remember Good Times VHS's uh, at the end of Good Times' run, they did a lot of EP tapes and I remember they all kind of look like shit. (laughs) Yeah, it was. It's a really bad. uh, I'm glad I own the Criterion Collection, Something Wild, because the tape was so bad. No trailers, (laughs) bad tape, uh, I don't even know if I can pull the audio. The audio we play in this will probably come from YouTube. It's that bad. That's hilarious. <laughs> so if you didn't pick up my history, I have not seen this until now. But I had always heard really good things about this. People had said like, oh, no, you're going to love this film. This is right up your alley. I saw I knew Criterion had the collection. I accidentally I wouldn't say accidentally. I, I got this VHS when I was trying to buy something else and this was just in it. And that's the same thing with two other films that we have. No, I'm sorry. One other film anyway. Yeah. So this was, this was fun. This was a fun one. And I was worried about 30 minutes into this film, not because the performances were bad. It's just, I was like, Oh, this is a movie about a guy cheating on his wife. Boy, was I wrong? It's complicated. (laughs) All right. Let's look at the, front of this vhs cover now i'm going to take it that you don't own this one because you just said that Uh, yeah i have this one on dvd i've got Mm -hmm. a totally awesome 80s double feature with another movie here that uh, we might be talking about very soon uh, next week um so uh, so i won't say what it is but i've got it on a double feature dvd here all right i'll describe my vhs the one that was so bad that i could you know couldn't even record it's got (laughs) melanie griffith and jeff daniels names at the top uh, some of the the first letter in each name is you know a different color, uh, and then we've got the fun font of something wild. And now something is like where you cut out a bunch of letters from a magazine or newspaper, kind of. Okay, they're just all different font types. Okay, so I, I guess that's supposed to represent maybe you know how wild and fun she, Melanie Griffith's character is, or maybe. Mood swings, or maybe just someone just wanted to do that. I don't know. I'm not going to overthink it. <laughs> but uh, a little bit more than half of it in the bottom has got Jeff Daniels hanging upside down with his tie dangling and Melanie Griffith laying on her stomach, lipping, licking her lips. It's fun. This is a cover that would stick out. And I'll be honest, I don't remember ever seeing it. Yeah, that's hilarious. You know, my, mine is so plain in comparison because mine has like the a 2000s comedy font and then it's just like the two of them like looking directly forward just like womp womp like kind of faces like um so you you have a little more interesting and i think more closer to the actual tone of the movie yes i i think they did a good job now what i don't usually describe the spines uh but this one's interesting because it has melanie griffith on the top in her underwear Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, well, in the, you know, like the, the black. Yeah. The black panties, if you will. I don't actually, they don't, they're the weirdest. I don't even know what you call this. It looks like workout underwear. The 80s. I don't know. I, don't I missed know. them. I, I, don't, 
I don't know what it is. But then she's got like a cutoff muscle shirt that's black. You know, this is when she's in the black wig. So I don't really know what to call this because I was like, are these quote unquote panties? Do you know what I mean? They're the the safest they could put on a spine of a VHS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess maybe that's why they got away with that. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, they were probably like, oh, maybe we can get men to rent this to bring home to their ladies. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. The back here. So the back is pink with black lettering. Luckily, I can read it. It's not hot pink. It's a softer pink. Um, and they actually uh, wrap the font around barcode. Good for That's you guys. Nice. Good times. Yeah. So whatever Lulu, Melanie Griffith, working girl. Obviously, working girl came after this movie, but this is a re-release. So, and Working Girls, the movie that like propelled him, propelled her into stardom. Yeah, it was around the same time. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the next year. Yeah, I think so too. So, whatever Lulu wants, Lulu gets. And what she wants right now is Charles Driggs, which is Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber, a conservative family man who's never done anything outrageous in his life. Lulu will. Lures Lulu lures Charles into a wacky paradise where she unleashes his innermost sexual fantasies and turns his life upside down. Soon, Charles is accompanying Lulu to her hometown in Pennsylvania, where she's introducing him to family and friends as her husband. Charlie! <laughs> there's a comma there, and then there's a word break that's weird. But the ride is just beginning when Lulu's ex-husband, Ray, Ray Liotta from Goodfellas, an ex-con psychopath, comes looking for her. Ray gets rid of anything in his way, and Charles is definitely in his way. This erotic, zany thriller from director Jonathan Demme, Silence of the Lambs, is a riveting exploration of hidden desires that lurk below the picture-perfect surface of us all. Wow. There you go. That's a description. <laughs> yeah, that's um yeah, I think I'm going to put that more on a better description basis. A little hard to read at certain points, especially uh when they say Lulu lures. Uh I had a really hard time with that. <laughs> and there's some word breaks that are kind of like, eh, maybe we shouldn't have done that there. Uh where they're justifying the text. Yeah, is this stylistically to probably, but uh um Hard to read when you're deciding if you're going to rent this movie, <laughs> especially when you don't read it beforehand. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, at the bottom, it's got a little bitty cutout of them about to kiss Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. Um, and I want to say this before we get into the entire film. If you would have said uh, I'm going to put Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith in a movie, I would have been like, hmm, both really good performers. I don't know if that's going to work. Let's screen test it. Uh, I would have been wrong. It's amazing. Amazing chemistry. Yeah, I think it just caught these guys at the right time, too. Like, really, like, they were kind of green still, but they were professional enough, you know. And that's what I said. I think they turned in some of their best performances here. So, good, just perfect timing, catching them right at the right time for this. Yeah, I completely agree. So, this came out November 7th, 1986. We'd be picking this up somewhere... Maybe spring, summer of 87. What do you think? You think we're written this? I think I probably end up passing on this, unfortunately, uh, if I saw this cover. Not because 
there's anything wrong with it, but I just feel like I think in my head this is not my kind of movie. But okay. I'm very wrong, and it's unfortunate. So don't judge a book by its cover all the time. <laughs> no, I don't think... My thing is, I wouldn't have picked it up either. I don't think I was ready to watch this film until I was older. I wouldn't have appreciated it. I just would have got bored and moved on. Yeah, I'm glad I waited until... Or not waited. I really didn't have a choice. I couldn't find it. But I'm I'm glad I waited kind of until college to see this one too, to appreciate it. I just don't think... You know, little me walking around the video store in the 90s would have gotten no. as much out of it as I did now. No, no way little me or teenager me was ever, ever considering picking this up. This would have had to been one that my mom rented. And even then, I just would have been like, oh, I've got better things to do. I'm little. Let's go watch Arnold. Let's go play sports. Let's go play video games. Anything else. Wrestling. I don't care. I'm not yeah. watching a quote unquote romantic comedy. And and a complicated movie, too. I feel like a mm-hmm. movie like this that's, you know, all over the place tonally and genre wise is would have con- just confused me as a kid. And, not, yeah. and I was watching plenty of these kind of genre benders as a kid, but usually of a certain kind, you know, so like a horror genre bender or a monster mm-hmm. genre bender. Something like this was just not in my sphere when I was younger, unfortunately, because it, it is a great movie. But yeah, it would I needed to be an adult to appreciate it. Yeah, and I would read the description on the Criterion Collection, but I don't know if we need it. It is short. Okay, let's do it. A straight-laced businessman meets a quirky, free-spirited woman at a downtown New York Greasy Spoon. Her offer of a ride back to his office results in a lunchtime motel rendezvous. Just the beginning of a capricious interstate road trip that brings the two face-to-face with their hidden selves. Featuring a killer soundtrack and electric performances from Jeff Daniels, Melanie Griffith, and Ray Liotta. Something Wild, directed by oddball American Atua, Jonathan Demme, is both a kinky comic thriller and a radically off-kilter love story. What's hilarious is... Capricious? Yeah, I don't... Criterion, get your head out your butt. (laughs) I don't think I've heard capricious since I was in college. (laughs) Who uses that word on the norm? The the Criterion Collection does. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, fine. Um, At least it was short. I'm not going to read mine because mine is like long. But I, I have to say like on this DVD, it is a completely different description as well. But I'm not going to read it because it's long. <laughs> but it's so funny with all these different releases. You have different descriptions. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about is like, how do you sell this movie to someone? (laughs) Yeah, I think they did the best job at the very end there where they called it a kinky comic thriller. I like that. Yeah, I think that's that is a good descriptor for it because it kind of covers sort of the the three main facets of it. You're going to get your romance. You're going to get your comedy. You're going to get your crime Ray Liotta movie. (laughs) So let's get into this. Pop this tape in. Now available on video and DVD. Well, no trailers on this because, well, one, if there was, I could barely see it. But no, there weren't. Uh, This is a re-release. This is how these cheap distributors do this. Uh, You know, they put it on EP mode. Basically, if you see EP mode, expect that they're not wasting money on trailers. Yeah. It's just how it is. You know, you got, uh, what is it, the treasures... Video treasures, video treasures, good times. There's a there's a bunch of them. There's yeah, a whole slew of them that were making money in the '90s and '80s on these uh, re-releases and cheap releases that they could license cheaply. Um, 
I'm not entirely against EP mode because some movies it benefits, you know, when they're like kind of scratchy old horror movies. So they're 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 fun to watch in like EP mode where they're dark as hell. It's almost like seeing a, like a shitty film print of it. Uh, but yeah, for a movie like this, for you know, a big action extravaganza, you don't want EP mode because you're gonna miss stuff. Oh yeah. You know what I also love is where they sneak in at the very bottom of the tapes where it's like it's in mono. I was like, no shit. It's an EP mode. We're not idiots. You're not wasting money on putting stereo in this shit. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm not going to be able to hear it. I'm not going to be able to see it. Great. Thank you. Uh, Wonderful. (laughs) Here's my five dollars because I know that this is a super cheap release. (laughs) And now our feature presentation. All right. Getting into this. This is fun because we have the yuppie. The yuppie archetype of he never does anything outside of his zone he goes to work he's saving money for retirement a home his family yada 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 he lives in a bubble a suburban bubble we've seen this the 80s just banked on these uh into the 90s but then i feel like yuppies kind of turned into evil corporation in the 90s maybe the late 80s kind of to turn that with robocop and stuff but we've seen this over and over but what i like about this is it flips it where he then turns into a well-balanced, complicated character. Right. It starts you off with, yeah, the the stereotype of the 80s yuppie. And yeah, it turns it, like you said. Hard, too. Yeah, we you know, we go on this journey with him that, that ch- changes him, but then also reveals the parts of himself that, like, she doesn't even see at first. You know, his she sees that he's a closeted, maybe, rebel, because she calls him that at one point, but mm-hmm. uh, you know she couldn't have even figured about this uh, divorce and you know losing the kids and stuff like that that he's dealt with. No, I feel at first when she was doing that, it was like to seduce him in a way, like, oh, mm-hmm. you're a rebel, you're a closeted rebel. Look at you. Yeah, it even she is shocked by what she didn't see. You know, she's seen a lot of shit in her life, and we'll get into her character in a bit, but. You know, he's holding things back. Um, I assume to save the image that he's worked his entire life to create. Yeah, he uh, he has to keep up these appearances of this like married, uh, you know, he's he's on, on deck for promotion type, you know, company guy. Why he got the promotion. Right. Wait. He starts Monday, right? Yeah. Isn't that the thing? Yeah, I think this all happens on a Thursday, and then he ends up calling off, you know, sick for Friday, and he's like, don't worry, I'll be prepared for Monday, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. where it then turns into he's got to get ready for, I don't even think it was a presentation, I don't know, it doesn't really matter, he's just got to get back to work on Monday, sort of, because right. then at the end, it's like, it doesn't matter, because his life changes so much, but we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, and then talking about her, Lulu which she's known as most of the movie. Her her character's actual name is Audrey um, Hankel? Hankel? Audrey. That's her real name. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also is a normal, stereotypical 80s rebel without a cause. You know, kind of drawing back from the 50s where they're challenging everything. They're like, why are you going to work every day? Why are you being a middle class zombie? Live your life, you know? And she's, you know, she likes to steal a little bit, live on the edge. But she also, you feel like she knows what's too far. 
you know, she'll, she'll go this far, but I won't cross this line. Like, she'll steal from a liquor store, but, you know, she didn't steal all the money, which I find fascinating. Like, why? Why didn't you clear out the drawer? You had the guy distracted. But she didn't. She just took what she needed. She's a, she's, she's a criminal, you know? Yes, she's got yeah, this definitely. Stuff, but she's a good person. She's not a bad person, and she's just trying to, I feel like, get the most out of life. She's been dealt kind of shit hands with her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend and stuff like that. Uh, and her past uh, sort of occupations. She's just gotten a shit mm-hmm. hand. But she's a good person. She's not trying to be like evil. Yeah. And it's weird, too, because she seems later on in the film. We really find out that she actually has a nice upbringing. She chose and got into this bad situation. Now, whether that was her fault and she didn't know and then she spiraled out of control, we don't really know. Um, And that's fine because we do know she had a good mother, uh, a good family life. I think her father died, but she basically got into the wrong crowd. It's like the like, yeah, exactly. The wrong crowd thing. Like, it's just you're, you're trying to find a little excitement. You're trying. But you're good. You're a good person. You came from a good thing and you just fell into some shit. That's all. That's, and I think real, that's yeah, what happened that's, to her. And I think that's what makes her so fascinating is she's not like, you know, she wasn't born from a mother and father who had drug addiction. and She lived in, you know, a one room apartment where four kids were, you know, using the same room on bunk beds or shit like that. that no, she came from what appears to be just a regular middle-class family in Pennsylvania. I think this is this three-dimensionalness is what makes all these characters so like, I know because you get, you get the Jeff Daniels thing and he's not just a yuppie square and she's not just a wild child. She's complicated. He's complicated. It's beautiful. That's what makes this, but it also present, it tricks you. It it tricks you in a fun way because you have to stick with this film. I will be honest, Sarah quit watching this film after 45 minutes to an hour because, I mean, think about this. We just got married and now we're watching a movie that's kind of like it seems is like glorifying cheating on your wife. Right. Maybe that played into her not liking it or maybe she just wasn't in the mood to watch this because she will watch slow burns. I know that personally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she's had to watch my shit and I've had to watch her shit. And sometimes we're pleasantly surprised. Uh, but this this one, she gave up. (laughs) No, she was, it was time to split. She was, I was like, okay. So I just took it back in my room and watched it. And then I came back like an hour and a half later. I go, Oh my God, you're not going to believe what this film turned into. (laughs) And then I didn't explain it to her because she wants to watch it. So I will watch this again. Hopefully I didn't over, uh, (laughs) oversell it. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know, dude. This is something. Something wild is something special. So <laughs> it really is. The performances that came together, and even all the character actors, and all these extras. My gosh, Mwah! good job. <laughs> I don't know where he found this guy, but I will tell you. I listened to the commentary. I because that's how much I like this. I had to rewatch it, so I will watch it a third time within you know a span of like a couple months. The commentary with Demi is interesting because he learned from Roger Corman. He is a Roger Corman student. And he said, when you're casting your extras and people in the background that have speaking lines, they are almost as important as your main characters because for a few seconds or minutes, they own your film and they can ruin it. 
And I was like, well, that seems a little extreme. But then he he made a point. He's like, most people watch films one time, they make an opinion, and then they will send it down the roller coaster of just smashing it with people who have seen it. They're like, that movie's terrible. Don't watch it. And a lot of people will take that actual like to heart. They won't watch it. And he's like, you never want an extra to ruin a film. You only want it to make the film better. And so he says he is very, very careful with his side characters. And he makes sure they are rich. That's why he likes to hire a lot of um, theater actors. And since he's, you know, was the New York guy, he went out of his way. And he also likes to hire artists. He, he believes artists usually bring a better, rich character. I found that fascinating. I, you can't say that without bringing up uh, my one of my favorite sort of artist cameos in this movie or, you know, extra parts in this movie. John Waters as the uh, <laughs> car salesman. Okay. Now, I need to see some valid identification and something showing you do have insurance. Can you take my word for it? No, I'm sorry. I'm afraid not. Okay. How about Mr. Franklin's? Well, we're talking. Uh, perfect casting. You know, and it's one role. One little role. But it's like, yeah, this is perfect. Of course this is John Waters. <laughs> and he's, you know, playing a sleazy used car salesman. It's perfect. He probably cherished this. He's like, thank you so much. I am going to play the shit out of this. I know I only have like four minutes on screen, but I'm going to play the shit out of those four minutes. Yeah. And he does. And he he's does. like he's he's the sleazy car salesman. But because he's John Waters, he's instantly likable as well. <laughs> yeah, he's got some type of charm that you just don't see often. Yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, that, and that's that's the bevy of all these different actors that show up in this movie, too. They're all just like especially the recognizable faces like the character actors and stuff that show up. Uh, you're just like, ah, they're so good. There's even in just one minute. They're so good. Yeah, so we've got, you know, I'm going to go through my notes, you know, line by line. So we got meeting at the diner where Jeff basically shows that he's a rebel. He doesn't pay for his lunch at this African diner. I don't quite know what this is, but either way, it's it's just a greasy spoon, as they call it, on the corner. And he chooses this one because I guess it's just easy to take off from, get into a taxi and get to his office it's something little it's like a little kid who steals some gum or a baseball uh, a pack of baseball cards it's just a small thrill you know it's not really going to hurt anyone too much but still you get that you get that juice that adrenaline rush <laughs> yeah and it, this and i believe this comes from a lot of privileged people people who had money if it makes them feel like a rebel for a small just a little bit of time it's one of those kind of you know, safe rebellion things, too, because mm -hmm. it's like if he does get caught, he can just pay the bill, you know? <laughs> so she catches him and basically the deal is, you know, ride with me. And then we get into her, but we see her. We digest so quickly who she is in like a minute. We have a wild car just full of colors and an African uh, tribal I'm not even going to say tribal. I don't know. A lot of African um, stuff that you would see in a boutique shop. I don't really like her in the black wig that much, but she is, she's got something about her. Like, you know, kind of like that. No man could resist saying no to her. Yeah. She, she's like magnetic in, yeah. a, in a way 
uh, not just the performance, but just like the character. You, you're pulled into their sphere immediately. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought she was going to rip him off for money at the beginning because she took his business card. She makes him drink. You know, she basically doesn't. He doesn't come back from lunch. Um, and he's like, oh, my God, I got a promotion. I can't do this. Uh, you know, I've got these credit cards or the company credit cards. I can't, you know, you you. You get this over and over until finally he gets some liquor in him and he starts to enjoy the ride because it's just something he's never going to get again. At least that's what, it, you know, this is his rebellious streak. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say midlife crisis, but this is like an adventure he'll never relive. So he's he finally starts to take advantage of it later on. Yeah, this is a, a, how I guess like a, the other half lives kind of situation because he's he's a yuppie so he's got to do a keep up appearances and it's all about money and status and things like that and for a minute for a minute he could just let loose and go wild yeah and then we get a, a robbery at a liquor store and you know what i was saying she doesn't take all the money which tells me a lot about her character but she's also stealing which tells me a lot about her character she's very comfortable with this she's very good she's done it for a long time these two characters you think you know right away i did it it fooled me and i'm like yeah i got it man, I thought this was like some great performance cult movie. And I'm sitting here watching this. I'm like, so far, I've seen this. And for about the first hour, well, there's a few signs that you're wrong. But they're little. They're not enough to overturn me anyway. You know, because then we get into the the motel room where they have sex. And holy shit, (laughs) Melanie Griffith just rips open her shirt and boobs pop out. And I was like, Whoa, I didn't think I'd see this much Melanie, even though I <laughs> kind of should have known because she's very free with nudity. I miss this kind of like I miss casual nudity in movies, <laughs> you know, um, you don't see it like this any anymore. You know, you don't like it's just it's just yeah, casual, you know, it's just so she's just this character and it's just like, yeah, she would be naked here, you know, and I don't know, movies either take too much to build it up or they don't do it at all. You know, Mm -hmm. like don't make it a thing just to have it be casual. (laughs) No, I didn't even see it coming. I I thought honestly, I'm so used to our Hollywood, you know, general audience films that I forget about the eighties and, you know, people coming off the hippie culture were like, she seems so comfortable with nudity. There was a part that like Jonathan Demi was probably like, you don't. I don't need you to lay naked on the bed. She's like, no, nah, I'm cool. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I. That's how she. That's how good she is. Like I felt like this nudity was almost like she's like, no, no, let's add more. This is who I am. I'm comfortable right now. <laughs> it's warm in this room. I don't know. It feels like that. And with a lot of the Hollywoodized PG PG thirteen stuff we watched, it. A lot of it feels mechanical. Now, that has definitely changed with the streaming services. And I'm not saying your movie needs freedom of nudity. I'm just saying when it happens like this, it adds to your film because the character feels so much more real. Yeah, exactly. Like when you think of like this, like the streaming nudities or like the uh, Game of Thrones nudity or whatever. It's all telegraphed. It's all like up. Here, somebody's about to get naked and it's about to be like a big deal. It's like, no, (laughs) it's just like, these are these characters. They're having sex in a motel room. Yeah, she's going to get naked. It's not weird. Don't make it weird. (laughs) Also, it wasn't Hollywood sex. It wasn't like, oh, 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 you know, all these fake noises and groans. I was like, 
wow, they just had sex in like four minutes. Yeah, that seems accurate. <laughs> he hasn't had sex in a long time and she's really hot. Uh, yeah, that's how it works, guys and girls. <laughs> You've done it. At least most of you, I hope. <laughs> if you haven't, try it out. It's lovely. Wear a condom. <laughs> Don't be weird about it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's really funny. <laughs> then it's okay because it's you. Yes. <laughs> but don't be creepy about it. Oh, don't be. Yeah, don't be a creep. So we get all this and we get the restaurant and the getaway, which, you know, again, that's where it was pushing Jeff Daniels line where he's like, I, I can't do this. But she pulls outside of this, you know, restaurant. They've just had a romantic dinner. He is starting to feel confident and it's kind of like, it's a fake confidence, but it's strong enough to make him break the law like this. Which I assume is farther than he's ever gone. And it really tells you how much of an attraction to her rebellion he has. Because he could have called someone and somehow figured this out and just left her and let her right off into the sunset. But no, 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 no. He was not letting go of this ride. Yeah, I mean, he, I'm sure he was like, addicted to it. I'm sure he, you know, he needed this. I like that you brought up the, the kind of false confidence, too, because like in the scene, I'm jumping ahead a little in the scene, like after the or during and after the reunion, when he's kind of just talking to everybody, I feel like that was like pretty relatable because I was, you know, younger younger teen i was a quiet guy but when you had those moments when your confidence kind of kicked in and they kind of goes into overdrive i was like yeah i kind of sounded like jeff daniels at the at the dance where you're just kind of talking to everybody mm -hmm. <laughs> with your this like newfound confidence i found i thought that like action and the way he was like talking and behaving was very relatable you know that like when you f those moments when you find confidence and then you overdo it <laughs> yeah you go a little too far and people can start to tell probably a little liquors involved or something else but you know the combination of i'm a cool dude confidence and liquor the liquid confidence you know those can be a bad combination honestly he doesn't ever go too far. I don't know. The restaurant's pretty far. All right. That's a criminal offense. That's something bad. So that's too far. I guess that's where that's his line. He's now crossed it and he's in new territory. So he starts to feel like a teenager, an awkward teenager. He is out of his element. He is a fish out of water from now on for the rest of the film. He's already kind of been a fish out of water, clearly, but now he's way over his head. Um, and then it kind of shifts to really more of an interesting film about Melanie Griffith's character, because when they arrive at her mom's house, it is a different level. It's a level where I started to really become invested in the film because she is bringing home a man to her mom and then just immediately being like, yep, we're married. And her mom's like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And then we find out this isn't something new. Her mom's used to it. She is a pathological liar and she lives in an alternate reality. I do. I like I like, though, when sort of like Jeff Daniels is backing her up, backing her story up yeah. and saying like, yeah, we are married and everything like that. And he's saying, but within that, in doing that, he's realizing that he is falling in love with her. I think it's a, it's just a good performance. It is thing that's he happening. there. It's such a nice person that he immediately plays along and understands that it's a game. 
and he's nice. He's not going to he is going to play along with this game because he feels like the mother is happy. He's washing the dishes with her. He's talking to her. He's trying to bond. He has no need to do this, but it really tells the audience who he is. He wants to make people happy. And in turn is finding that he is falling in love with her. It's yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting and yeah, it's telling of the characters. And I, I like this shift too, because up until this point, you know, we start with Jeff Daniels, we're at the restaurant with him, Melanie Griffith comes crashing into his life, we go crashing into the movie. We don't know what's gonna go on. And then at this point the movie kind of is shifting, we're learning more about her. And it it becomes sign of her movie, but we get to see his sort of journey through it. You know, it, it it's a nice it's a nice two hander. It's a nice way of featuring both of them. Yeah, it's really well done. It really is. It takes a special writer, director, and people behind the camera and people in front of the camera to pull off these performances and these small changes in their characters' reactions that is are really rich. Uh, it really pays off for the entire film at the whole because we're about. You know, then we get him picking out the suit, and I only bring this up. It's not an important scene, but it was Jonathan Demme's mom and David Bryan's mom, which is the front man for the Talking Heads. I bring that up because Jonathan Demme loves directing music videos. He loves music. It's just funny to see that, uh, how much he can also not only bring in really special character actors, but he's also using his family and friends. And it yeah. works. A lot of times this will ruin a film or ruin a scene in a film because it'll be bad acting. It feels like Jonathan Demi in this movie is like kind of the most talented people in a just a group of artists. Not as well, I don't want to say most talented because I don't want to take away from all these other people that are in here. But like he feels he is the ringleader for this movie of this group of artists, these cool New York feeling like artist types that uh you know he's the ringleader for this movie and yeah like david byrne and the the talking head stuff he had just come off of stop making sense the talking heads uh concert movie plus he yeah does a ton of music videos and that lended then to this movie having like one of the most incredible soundtracks of of the 80s for sure like in, in terms of like needle drops and stuff like that uh the score is also really good in this movie but the music is uh amazing the song choices it's used well he's so plugged into this artist world he's able to pluck these amazing uh, songs he's able to pluck these amazing artists and performers in the movie it's it's crazy and then yeah filmmakers like john waters and you know roger corman's later in uh silence of the lambs like he's just is collecting these artists that he's working with and it's it's quite wonderful it really is he knows he's like a border collie just wrangling all these artists, keeping yes. them going in the right direction. They're <laughs> yes. all working together, and it's beautiful to watch. It's yes. kind of like a dance. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we get to this dance from Pennsylvania. Is this the 20th anniversary? Is that what this is, the 20th reunion? I thought it was 10th. I feel like they're a little old for 10th, but maybe. Maybe you're right. I, I honestly don't recall. Uh, the only thing I think that the only line that made me think that is she says, I'll see you in another 10 years when they leave. Okay. So that's what makes me think 10 years. But I, I don't know. I'll take your word for it because I don't remember. I just threw out a number 20th. 
but 10 year reunion, you know, he comes in, he is very confident. He gets, you know, he starts dancing on the dance floor, which, you know, if you're an awkward white guy, that is a big deal. (laughs) And he is just living this life. But then he bumps into someone he works with. And at first he is terrified. They have an argument outside that is really like what you think is the beginning of the end of this relationship. It's like, okay, he realizes this shit's fake. What's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. Company plastic. Valid company credit cards. They were in my wallet. I was in my jacket. Well, it's gone. My MCI number, my access card to get me into my own building. I mean, who God knows who's got that. My Christmas club voucher. Oh, crap. If I don't get my wallet back, you know what? What? I'm fucked. Uh, so the, the, the dream starts to shatter a little bit. But... His friend then basically gives from work, gives him a thumbs up like, yeah, dude, at this point in the film, you think like, yeah, man, you cheating. You're cheating on your wife with this hot piece. You know, you're like the dude I always wanted to be. But we find out when Ray Liotta is introduced to this film that his wife, they are not together. His kids and his wife are gone. He does not have much custody i i don't understand maybe he gets them like every other weekend or something like that but his life has been ripped apart and she ran off with the dentist yeah because he has the picture in his wallet that he shows uh melanie griffith he later shows ray liotta of the family or whatever but yeah he like he said he says something like that they ran off and he doesn't see them like he has no connection with his family now yeah that's what i got too like they're just gone I don't understand how that works because he still has the house, which is really odd. But anyway, it's a film. Who knows? But I think it adds it adds that extra dimension to that character. He's come from some sort of tragedy. But he has he pretends like he's still married. To keep up appearances. Yeah, he's a yuppie. <laughs> and, but he lives alone in a big house and he has nothing. I mean, he's got like the blueprints of having a lot of stuff, you know, this appearance, but really inside it's just dark and cold. Yeah. He's living alone, eating McDonald's and, and whatever frozen dinners. It's sad. He has a sad existence right now. When you find that out, my feeling was the immediate shift of like, fuck yeah, dude, you didn't, we don't know if he did anything wrong, honestly, but, she cheated on him. She left him. She took the kids. She ruined the life. That's the kind of appearance this film's giving. Uh, we don't know, honestly. We don't know anything else other than that. But what it changes, because there's a lot of personal opinions that could change the background because they don't fill it in. So that's probably on purpose. But what we do know is what he's doing right now is not wrong. Right. And he is finding himself again, sort of, yeah. it feels like. You know, he's trying to he just... Get in touch with not not just his wild side, but just like his human side, because he's been such a corporate zombie for however long it's taken for him to get to this VP position. Then the movie shifts dramatically because we introduce Ray, played by Ray Liotta, which is making his film debut, which is hard to believe. But maybe that's what propelled him into superstardom because the dude is amazing in this film. And personally, I think he steals it away from two other fantastic performances. So that takes a lot. 
but he comes on like James Dean. He is burning hot. You know, Charlie, she's not going to be too happy driving around in a station wagon the rest of her life. You better think about that. You better ask yourself if you really want her. I really want her. Oh. Charlie, you gotta fight for a woman like this. I don't have to fight you, Ray. I'm gonna take Lulu. We're gonna waltz right out of here, and there's not a damn thing you can do. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh Charlie, you are something. You are something. Yeah, he crashes onto the screen like he explodes onto the screen <laughs> yeah you do uh, not see many performances like this it isn't over the top you know it's almost kind of subdued but that's what makes him creepier and scarier and more threatening is that he mm-hmm. is a little personable he is a little charming he's a good looking guy he's you know but there is such an evil there and such a menace there and it, that's a hard performance to get across especially in your first big screen performance but man does he nail it yeah, he reminds me of like someone beginner's luck in a sport where they're doing something and they don't realize how much they're overperforming. Except he, you know, we find out with him, it's not luck. He's just that damn good. But he comes on so, so confident, so well put together in his performance that it's almost like, dude, you don't realize how good you are. And maybe he didn't at the time. But, um, you know, a lot of people tried out for this role. They had a really hard time filling it. Melanie Griffith mentioned that she knew someone from an acting school or she went to acting school. I don't quite know. Uh, I don't remember. But, you know, they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll bring him on. And they said when they saw him, the way he just appeared on camera, we got to hire this guy. And, And there was some problem inside the producers like, are we really going to hire this guy that no one knows out of acting school to be our main antagonist in this film? I know we're not spending a lot of money, but you know, they're going against two people that we know in Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith, and we know they can act. We don't know any, this is such an unknown, but man, what is, what a great choice. Yeah. Good luck. Good. Like that luck was on their side when they made that one happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> So we're at the high school reunion. He's got the confidence of dancing. We get introduced to Ray, but it's a fun introduction. They go out for drinks afterwards, even though she wants nothing to do with hanging out with him. But with a few interactions through other characters, we find out that, you know, Ray and Lulu, which is actually Audrey, have a history. Uh, So Ray is talking to Charles and he's like, you old dog, look at her. She is fine as hell and all this stuff you know guys being guys talk locker room shit going on then ray takes well he robs a gas station and it gets violent and he pops charles in the nose there's blood everywhere and this movie turns so hard so fast and ray becomes so threatening yeah, the way, the way he get turned on a dime like that is so scary. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it, it going back to like that false confidence of the Jeff Daniels character, the way he's so like buddy buddy with Ray at first, you know, like when they first meet and he's got that, you know, Jeff Daniels has that false confidence and they're just talking. And yeah, like 
talking about uh, Melanie Griffith and everything. Uh, but he's so naive. He doesn't. He can't see the sort of darkness that's lurking uh, underneath Ray Liotta. And I don't. I think. I think one of the fun things about the performances. I think we as the audience can see that this guy's bad news, but like Jeff Daniels just cannot see it. He can't see it. He's just blinded by the excitement of everything going on around him. There's a hint when he says there's no kind of, you know, there's no reason to talk like that. Uh, when Ray Liotta goes a little bit too far saying something about how great the sex is and how she's a demon in the sack or something like that. And he's like, hey, there's no need to talk about her like that. Uh, so he gets a little bit of his, oh, I'm the big dog. You know, I'm barking back. And then he gets his nose popped and he realizes I don't have a fucking chance against this guy. This dude <laughs> yeah. would rip me apart. And we find out he boxes in prison. He's a tough dude. Uh, and then we get to see him truly unhinged inside of his seedy motel room. Where you even see that Audrey. Wait, is it Aubrey or Audrey? Audrey. Audrey is afraid of him. She feels trapped. She can't do anything to escape him. And they let Jeff Daniels go. Charles leaves. He has a chance to just go home, take the car that they bought and get the hell out of Dodge. He can go back to the suburbs of Jersey. Was he in New York or Jersey? I don't know. I think I th- it was. I think it was the suburbs of New York. So maybe it was Jersey. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, um, that region is where they're at. <laughs> he's, he's in a suburbia, but I think he works in New York City. One of the bureaus of, I don't know, Manhattan. We'll just say it. I don't know. I don't think they actually ever say. I mean, this is a New York film. These are New York actors, at least the re- you know at the time. Mm-hmm. So Anna Ryan, I believe, was a big New York like production house, I think. I may be making that up in my mind, but I think from the movies we've done, most of these actors are from New York. The, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure where the uh, Orion base is. But yeah, I think I think with this movie, it's such it, like a New York artist movie. Like yeah. you were talking about earlier. This well, one the, feels. Yeah, the next movie is the most New York film I've ever seen. <laughs> so, you know, that's what I assume from this all. But uh, yeah, we he goes, he has a chance, and he says, you know what? No, I want her. I think she wants me. I'm going after her. And he takes a massive, massive risk. Uh, he starts to, you know, change his clothes. He starts to be this little peep. You know, he's looking at him through his all the stuff that he buys. He's using the company credit card. He doesn't care. He's like, I'm going to get her back. I'm going to find a vulnerable spot and I'm going to take her. And he does. But that diner scene when he comes in and the cops are there and he's like, listen, Ray, you're not going to do shit. I'm going to take her and walk right out of this diner. That talk between those two, that like five minute scene, that's special. All of them, all their performances, that's special. Yeah, it's pretty electric. I wonder if they shot this in order. I don't know, but it just kind of gets that vibe because it really does build to the end. And and these end scenes feel very satisfying because these characters feel very lived in. But maybe that's just a testament to how good these guys are. (laughs) Yeah, and then they they drive all night. They go to wherever his suburb is. You know, she's escaped the evil. And you, you get a full sense of security. 
we know this isn't going to end lovely. Something's going to happen. We're not idiots. We've seen movies. But this ending is so violent. But and I'm not even talking about, you know, like the fight scene and everything like that. It's how raw it is. How real. It feels real because these we spent so much time with these characters. Everything feels kind of earned with these characters like we because we know them three-dimensionally and we know their full story by the time it gets to this kind of crazy ending it doesn't feel like out of nowhere it's like oh no we have established this firecracker of a human in ray Liotta, and it's like it's the only way this is gonna end is with him dead <laughs> like that's the only way this is gonna stop someone's dying yeah they did obviously this could have been choreographed better this was a small independent film, uh, and Jonathan Demme mentions this. He's like, listen, I'm not an action director. We were doing our best. In fact, our cameraman got stabbed because the knife flew out of Ray Liotta's hand. And he's like, why are we using a real knife? I don't know. <laughs> no need. He just said, it. he's like, we didn't know what we were doing, and we did our best. And it works for the time, but now... I could see a younger audience watching this after watching all the Marvel movies, DC, comic book, whatever we have. This is weak compared to what we're... But there's something raw and gritty and kind of accidental about it all. Yes. It just feels... For me, someone who's not part of the general audience anymore, it feels just like it's refreshing. There Again, it's, there's a reality to it. It's more like uh, two guys scrapping and one of them accidentally gets stabbed versus, you know, uppercut, you know, block, yeah. you know, very like it's uh, not choreographed stunted. At all. Yeah, like stunt coordinated. It's it's fun to watch. I like it. You know, I, I'm not also dissing the Marvel movie choreograph. You know, like it's the same thing with the um, Jackie Chan movies throughout the time. Like we get it. We're here for the action, the craziness. You know, we want to see all that. But with this, I don't. So I was happy. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a human story like this, you don't want it to be too movie-like like no, that. I think they did a great job. Uh, yes, use a fake knife. Uh, why the <laughs> hell you would use a real knife in a struggle like that when the floor's wet? Yeah, Jonathan Demi mentioned that. He's like, I learned a lot before I did Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, we didn't know. He's like, no one said anything on, on production when we were shooting this. No one said anything on set. The producers were there and they're just like, OK, we'll take out the knife when they're, you know, like struggling with it. And they had the they, a real knife. He is pointing a real knife inches away from his face. And he's like, this is so stupid. I can't <laughs> believe we did this. But we did. No one got hurt except the camera guy got stabbed in the foot. He didn't even need stitches. It just went through his boot. And Jonathan Demi said he was a total asshole, too, because he's like, quiet on set. We're shooting here. And the camera guy goes, fuck you. I just got stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, I felt so bad. He's like, but, you know, you're used to people make it not hearing that, you know, like quiet on the set. And he's like, by set, I mean some random suburb home that let us shoot. <laughs> um, and they said it wasn't it wasn't hard to dress all this you know, because it was a model home. Uh, their biggest thing was they didn't want them to break the glass because they wanted to show the house the next week and they were That's afraid hilarious. they couldn't get the entire glass repaired. But but it, but it, it works, too, because, of course, Jeff Daniels's character would live in a model home kind of cookie cutter suburban home. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it works perfect. Everything worked. 
Uh, so it was fun to see all this come together. And then, okay, so we don't have any controversy with the ending, but I just wanted to let you know, because the line comes back, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Uh, that was, so this entire line that connects this movie, which kind of becomes the mantra of Jeff Daniels, and maybe even the entire movie, that was never planned. So the original guy who said it was an artist that Jonathan Demi said knew. And he was supposed to just come up and tell him, you know, give him the after Jeff Daniels has the hangover. He's given him, I don't know, Pepto, something like that. And he goes, he was supposed to say, don't worry, we all been there and walk off. And he's like, you know what, John, I I, I feel like I got to give him some more. I got to give him some advice. You know, we've all been there. And Jonathan said, fine. Yeah, let's shoot it. And the reaction of Jeff Daniels is real. Jeff Daniels just thought he was coming up to give him Pepto or whatever. And then saying like, we all been there and then walk off. And he goes, we've all been there. It's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. And Jeff Daniels laugh is real because as soon as they cut it, he immediately goes, Jesus, Jonathan, where do you get these people? <laughs> and he, and he mentioned, he goes, this is the greatest movie and to this day, Jeff Daniels says it's like it's the greatest cohesive movie he's ever been a part of because everything felt good. He's like, nothing felt bad. I've done good films. I've done bad films. But this one, more than even Dumb and Dumber, which he said, felt like so cohesive. Everything was coming together. Uh, and he said the extras in this, the, the side characters were so good that he was convinced he was going that all the stars were going to be outshined by the extras. He's like, they were just too talented. And <laughs> a lot of production houses won't let that happen. They will, you know, reshoot the scene. They're like, you can't outshine the stars. And Jeff Daniels says, day, he, like he mentions, he's like, this movie is built on just the environment alone. Yeah. Li- lived in again, as it tied in. I think that's why this movie's so successful. It's so smart. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun to be in it. Did you think they were going to get back together at the end? I think so. I think the first time I watched this, I think I got that vibe. I thought he was just going to go. His life had restarted, but it was too chaotic to be together. But I will be honest. I I was happy when they got together because I just like them. And maybe it's not forever. Maybe it's just for now still. But like, I don't know. It was important time in both of their lives. So try it out. See if it works. Yeah, Uh, I liked it. I liked it so much, like this whole film. And even the end, I watched the entire song that was performed. Let's say it was written by Chip Taylor and performed by Sister Carol. Wild Thing, where she just that was done in one take. It's great. It's great. I love movies that end like this, like with, uh, you know, a performance or something over the credits. I I think it's such a it's such a clever, fun ending because it just like pans. It goes from them getting in the car camera pans over and the singer's standing right there. And then we start the credits. It's I love, I like that. It's kind of interwoven into the movie here. And I like, I like the way, you know, it does run over the credits. I like the fact that we have three versions of a uh, wild thing, three different interpretations of wild thing throughout the movie. Uh, yeah. I, I really like the, I really like the way this movie ended and, and tied it up and it feels very uh, its own thing. It feels like very much a part of the like the ending feels very much a part of this movie. And I like how Melanie Griffith changes three times in this film. We have the beginning where she has the black wig on. 
We have the middle where she has the short blonde hair, where she's more of the primp, you know, attractive suburban wife kind of look. Yeah, back back home, the back home look. And then at the end, where she's kind of, I don't even know how to describe her at the end, but she is confident. She is free. Yeah, free. Is it, you know, free she's is just, how she really is appearing. Yeah, she's she's the most attractive to me at the end. I think that's the point. I yeah, that's I, the idea. I'm wondering like if that was the plan or it's just happened to be like we didn't think you'd look this smoking, but damn. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just something about it like and I think it is. She just her like aura. Like just how just like she's free. And I love it. And then it's <laughs> such a weird vehicle that she pulls up in. Like this weird like wooden door i don't know i just love how she can change dramatically so much in this film i feel like it does almost lay the groundwork for what would later become unfortunately the manic pixie dream girl kind of story that we see a lot in the 2000s yeah from yes eternal sunshine on the scott pilgrim where they make fun of it um sort of that that uh time this almost lays the groundwork for that with this character where she is so herself and yeah changes all the time and uh you know wild but is looking for something more it 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 definitely left left that groundwork for it to be picked up by uh numerous numerous scripts it's because the independent film like rage that came in the late 80s and early 90s this character wasn't I'm not going to say wasn't allowed. Um, it just wasn't being picked up. I, I guess, you know, a lot of these production companies weren't doing this. Um, women at this time period uh, were being dressed down. They were being part of the home and all this shit. And it was fun to see this, but it was too successful in some of these films. We're doing two of the films this month. And then, yeah. like you said, Scott Pilgrim just made fun of it. And yeah. good for them. It needed to be. You know, we've made fun of so many of these genre films. And I don't, I guess, Pixie Girl, Punk Girl. Is Pixie Girl the right thing to say? I don't even know. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, like, is that the best description? I guess. That's like what it became. You know, that's the 2000s version of this. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we'd seen it so many times in the 90s and 2000s. It just came back and a little bit different here and there. But uh, this... I don't know the first one. Yeah, this just this is the fully fleshed out earned version of what would later lazily become that. But mm-hmm. this is sort of that person that is multifaceted where they are, you know, they have this connection to a home life and they they have like sort of the 80s version of the housewife thing, but is also still the sex kitten wild child as well. But instead of being either or or being put into those boxes or just them chaotically smashed together, it's a three dimensional person who has these aspects within them. She's a beautiful character. And I'm not even talking about her appearance. Yeah, we all know Melanie Griffith was attractive. I'm just saying it's a beautiful character that's just fun to watch. And, you know, it's it's one of the first ones I've ever seen. For sure. Uh, I agree. and, And I'm an 80s kid. You know, you're you're basically a 90s kid. So. These two dudes right here, this is pretty much our first one. And wow, 
What a way to start. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start Orion month. Uh, yes. Okay, so let's go on to museum. This is the second time I've had to reclaim my property from you. That belongs in a museum. So do you. This is the part of the show where we go out in the film jungle like Indy and we bring something back into our museum. So let's start it. This is part of our Orion wing. Uh, we've done a lot of Orion pictures, you know, Robocop being the most popular, but there's been a few more. But Orion was a fantastic mid. I'm not going to. Was it? A, it wasn't a mid major at this point when this film was made. It was a mid production house with promise. I guess you could say, right? Yeah, this was it was very of the 80s, you know, it was. But yeah, it was like it had ties to MGM, which was a major, but it wasn't it wasn't fully it was there. They were still able to do their own thing. So it was like kind of a little bit of a playground where there was some money, but artists could play and you could do kind of edgier stuff. Yeah, the start and the beginning of their descent was Robocop because you had Child's Play, which I think was 87 as well. I think 87 was a historic year for this medium production house because I think you had Child's Play and Robocop, correct? I think Child's Play was a year later, 88. So, was but still, like that time period, like from, yeah. from this to Robocop to that, and then like it, just everything, even all the way up to Thousand of the Lambs. <laughs> so, Orion, you know, like huge with the Robocops, the Child's Plays, they did distribute the terminator but it wasn't their film so they're an interesting company who started i think distributing and then turned into a production house which i mean that happens i think that's how new line was created correct mm-hmm. yeah so also i think canon did that and then you know canon kind of went the orion direction where they got too big f- they thought they were big enough to compete with the columbia's the paramounts the whatever the mgms they get a little you know, they start to drown because, you know, these bigger production houses, they've got the library to make failures. They really do. MGM. OK, they started to struggle because they made too many failures and they made too many investments and way too many uh, distribution library growth projects where they were trying to grow their uh, <laughs> library. And then they're like, shit. We really shouldn't have put out all these canon films. <laughs> but there was more than that. So uh, they get a little too big for their britches. Uh, Orion hit that and then eventually was bought out mostly by MGM, correct? Yeah, MGM has most of their library. Some of it went to Warner. Some of it went to, uh, uh, I think, like MVD has the Hemdale ones, some of the Hemdale ones. So it, they kind of went a little everywhere. Yeah, because mostly MGM. Hemdale failed also. Yeah. And then ended up becoming something else. But anyway, what we're saying is we have we've done a lot of Orion pictures. We love them. You know, you're Bill and Ted's. Um, which is a fascinating story too, as it own, correct? Yeah. They they did they Nelson is the one who like, but then also Orion put it out. So there's like there's a layer to it. So Orion was a force in the late 80s. Orion also around this time picked up uh, Amadeus as well. So that probably helped put them on the map Oh, that's, around yeah, this time that's right. also. I always forget how popular Amadeus was. Yeah. 
so many Oscars that year. You know, that probably really helped them as well. They weren't the only ones to put it out, but they uh, worked on it. So, yeah, and I would say one of the worst things that uh, Orion did was sell the sequel rights to Child's Play. But at the same time, I'm glad I'm as a fan. I'm glad they did because I like what it turned into. But I wonder what it would have been like if they would have held on to it. Well, I believe they were one of the production houses that were embarrassed. New Line, on the other hand, was embarrassed, but still continued to produce Freddy and built. It became the house that Freddy built. And then before you know it, Warner Brothers is like, you are so uh, profitable. We're buying you. It's like, that's the dream. Right. I believe from what I know, Orion was a little embarrassed of RoboCop, a little embarrassed of Child's Play. They wanted to do these movies. They wanted to do something wild. Problem is, something wild doesn't make money. Yeah, you need Not your enough. RoboCops in your <laughs> You need Child's to do the place. trash that like entertains you and I. We are truly trash fans. We yeah. appreciate something wild and we love to watch them every once in a while, but we're trash. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, folks. We'll get into some of the RoboCop trash, maybe. 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 Who knows? Who knows? I I just want to let folks know that there's nothing wrong with the trash. Trash is entertaining. And trash doesn't always have to be a bad thing. Yeah, trash doesn't mean bad. Trash means trashy. (laughs) It's junk food. We could call it junk food. Exactly. Well, junk food's always bad, but it's also perfectly acceptable on some days. Yes. (laughs) Get your vegetables. You know, I would say something wild is your vegetables. You know, you need your broccoli every once in a while. You need your fiber. But we also need our Doritos and Robocop. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, what do you, um, we haven't even said what we're putting in this. What do you got? I'm going to put the soundtrack in the museum, specifically like the uh, the songs chosen for the movie. I, 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 There's so much I could say about this movie. I love the actors. Ray Liotta gives like a just out of out of this world performance and and the other two leads are fantastic as well uh script cracks the movie moves along at a great pace the tone is right everything's good here i love this movie i think it's fantastic i think it's great but i think the soundtrack stands out for me i bought the vinyl so (laughs) oh you're one of those i'm not one of those i know so that's how that's why that's what i'm saying that this soundtrack is so good i'm not like i don't really typically go out and buy a lot of like vinyls of stuff uh like that like i wouldn't go out and buy necessarily that many vinyl soundtracks but this one i had to have yeah this one i had to have uh melanie griffith boobs now uh uh, let me tell you why (laughs) i'm not just being like the nudity guy when Sarah and I were watching this, this scene happened and we both went, whoa, <laughs> like the whole thing was just like, we didn't see this coming. And I don't know why. I, I think if I rewatch this, I would be like, what's wrong with you? But I felt like it just was so organic that it shocked her. She's just like, I can't believe she just did that. And I'm like, I don't even know if she told the director she was going to do that. <laughs> That's how like real it felt. And it's not so much that I got to see boobies. It was that it shocked me. Yeah, it was the way the, the way the movie handled it is what you yeah. liked about it. Yeah. It, it doesn't happen often where I just yell out loud at a film. It surprised you in, in the good way, in a good way. Honestly, for me, from then on out, the film was just like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it sent you on, sent you on a path of the unexpected. <laughs> yeah, 
and I just didn't understand or, or not that I didn't know what was going to happen from scene to scene. And the movie kept surprising me. And I, 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 I love this film. I do. I, I think this is such an unappreciated uh, late 80s, I guess mid late 80s, independent, fantastic character story. There's so much to this film. I can't put it in a few words. I mean, we just talked about like for an hour and a half about this film and it's it's so good. And no one who is a film fan and I'm talking trash film fan, Marvel film fan, uh, whatever, whatever you are. I think you will appreciate the performances in this. And I, I think you'll appreciate how much it will stun you at times. Yeah, how, it, it, how much it works, how much it all comes together. How much it, yeah, you feel like you're with them on this crazy journey. And I think you have, I have to tell people, stick with it. You might want to bail out after 30 or 45 minutes. Sarah's been through a lot of shit that I've watched and has stuck with it. This one, she didn't. I wish she would have, and she will. She wants to rewatch it now, but... Stick with it because it will shock you. It's worth it, it. Yeah, it really is. It's a good two hours. And you know what? Credit to everyone, the director, the performers, everyone. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a special one. Definitely a really, really, really good movie that most audiences could enjoy if they just kind of trusted it and went in a little blind because you don't want to know too much go in a little blind and just like have a good time with it and go on the journey with it so let's turn to our 2021 new segment kind of maybe i don't know we're gonna see how this sticks but let's talk about some new films and let's talk about new mutants matt i feel like you have more to say about this than i do so start it off after the trailer came out in what 2016 of this movie and it was supposed to come out in 2017 i got i was pretty excited for it i mean it had like this look of the dream warriors gonna be like a a x-men horror movie or whatever and uh i was super into it and then you know then we heard the stories of well we're gonna do reshoots no we're not gonna do reshoots yeah we are gonna do reshoots oh we sold to disney disney doesn't want to do reshoots but we'll put it out next year oh it's the coronavirus all right well we'll just dump it in the summer and then um it had this whole crazy journey and usually for a journey like that it's either gonna be really bad or really good and just kind of got stuck in a shitty position but this movie frustratingly falls in the category of just nothing it's just a nothing movie and uh i was i was i heard i had heard because i didn't see it in the summer obviously uh i'm not gonna go to the theaters during a pandemic uh if you are good for you not for me uh but uh not gonna do it so i had heard it was pretty bad and i was like well i like movies that sometimes people think are pretty bad so i still really want to see it and then i saw it and i was like oh no it's just dream warriors but only the counseling scenes. <laughs> yeah, it's talking in rooms, filling up the plot, and then at the end being disappointed. I don't have much to say about this film. I just didn't like it. I think it's poor. That's my word for it. It's boring. It's just, yeah, characters talking in a room. It's not very exciting. It's not scary. It doesn't really... The the teen characters, you don't care about them. You don't really know anything about them. There's no real differentiation. They're not super interesting. Uh, the X-Men series is 
just wrought with just all a bunch of bad movies. I think there's only a couple standouts in that series. And this is just another in a line of super disappointing X-Men movies. The thing that got a rise out of me the most is when you brought up it's like Dream Warriors. And I was like, yeah, except when it's just like the psychotherapy scenes. Yep. It's like, oh, yep. And then they fight a bear at the end a metaphysical dream bear (laughs) when i was watching this film i was like holy crap this is what we got this is what you got this was the best you guys had for we had we have four years to get this thing out and this was the best you guys had (laughs) oh yuck so odd to see these uh actors who have talent being in this kind of joke of a movie it feels like like there's a part of me where it's just like surprise it's not real no this yeah. is real yeah surprise we made a home movie because that's like there's nothing ha- nothing happens in this movie it's the worst offense it's a, such a bad film <laughs> it's a bad movie and it's a it's a bad movie that it's not like so bad you have to see it type thing it's just bad it's and it's nothing you could drink a cup of water and get the same thing well yeah but at least with the water you're hydrated exactly (laughs) this gives you nothing (laughs) this movie drains you of your liquids okay so if i had a gun to your head and you had to watch this the new moons or dark phoenix which one do you choose oof last movie of your life probably dark phoenix just because the cosmic horror stuff works really well in that movie, but it's only like 10 minutes. So at least I'd get 10 minutes of satisfaction from that movie, whereas New Mutants has nothing for me. So the tagline of New Mutants will be like, if Matt had no choice. He still wouldn't choose it. (laughs) He still wouldn't choose New Mutants. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I agree with you. It's got to be Dark Phoenix. Which was also like garbage, though. There's I, the, my one nice thing I had to say about it. Do not take that as it should be watched. It's it is also still terrible. What about Birds <laughs> of Prey? What if I threw Birds of Prey in there? Out of the three, what are you choosing? Oh, Birds of Prey is one of my favorite movies this year. I adored Birds of Prey. So okay, so I I still haven't seen it. I just wanted to hear your opinion. Oh, I think yeah, I think Birds of Prey is woefully underrated. I think Birds of Prey is fantastic. I loved that one. I've seen it twice already this year, so I'll be honest. I forgot it came out. Oh yeah, it came out the like two weeks before everything shut down, so it disappeared. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I I will watch it. I don't even know if it's streaming anywhere. It's on HBO. Is it okay? Yeah. All right, so I can't watch it. Oh, yeah, that they... makes sense. HBO gets all the DC stuff. Yes, that's because it's Warner Brothers. It's part of their right? collection. Yeah, it's. They have a DC section on HBO Max now, so it's part of it. Okay, that will end our review of Something Wild. It was long. It was fun. We haven't talked in a while, so get over it, folks. (laughs) (laughs) That's who we are. We'll come back next week with another Orion, I would say, you know, kind of sleeper hit. Yep. A cult classic that our parents probably watched. Yes. All right. Till next week. Remember to be kind. And rewind.